Hail brothers, this is Didact, and you are listening to episode 115 of Didactic Mind. And the word became flesh. Very warm welcome to all of my longtime listeners. Very warm welcome to my Podbean subscribers. Very warm welcome to my readers from the site. Delighted to have you here with me today uh, on this most sacred of days, on Christmas Day, for those of my uh, listeners who are of the Russian Orthodox persuasion. Uh, well, it's just another day for you lot, but uh, I, I'm sure um, you will join me in wishing our fellow Christian brothers a very, very warm and happy Christmas season, uh, a very happy Christmas in and of itself. And we'll get to the, the Russian Orthodox uh, Christmas soon enough. I think it's January 7th next year. So plenty of good stuff to look forward to in 2024. I think the uh, Orthodox Church is in the midst of a major, massive revival throughout all of Russia. And indeed, I'm very pleased to be broadcasting to you from Russia itself right now. I am here in Moscow. Uh, my surroundings are a little perhaps less salubrious than one might um, expect or at least than I am used to in, in my own home, but I'm not staying in my own place, which is fine. Um, I'm quite happy being here. I just, I love being in Moscow around about this time of year. I love being around the people, around the culture, the scenery, the, everything about the place is just it, it really magical around about this time of year. But because I'm not in my usual spot, uh, the sound may be a little bit uh, rougher than you might expect. And you might hear a few more transients coming through than you would expect on a normal Didactic Mind podcast. But the content of the podcast is what matters, I think, and we will carry on regardless. So, as is my wont on Christmas Day, I try to look at the point of Christmas from uh, kind of a, a spiritual as well as a practical perspective. To understand what it is that we're celebrating. And it's not just the time with family, it's not just the time with friends, the gift giving, the caroling, the decorating the Christmas tree, uh, going out in the snow and sledding around for those of you who live in northern climates, or going out to the beach and uh, bouncing around a volleyball, as would be the case in a southern climate such as Australia or Argentina. The point of Christmas is none of these things. I mean, these are all very wonderful things. I have many extremely happy memories from my childhood of going to spend Christmas with my grandparents and my extended family in the old country. And those were defining moments for my childhood, of course, uh, as they are for many of you, I'm sure. But that was not really the point of Christmas. I mean, what's the point of calling it Christmas if all you're doing is spending time with family during the holidays? There's nothing wrong with that per se, but it's important to understand there's a greater purpose at work behind all of this. And I was reminded of that when I was at Midnight Mass last night, uh, sitting in Moscow, yes, in an Anglican church, yes, uh, in the city center and listening to a female pastor uh, give the service. Now, 
I have a lot of issues with the Anglicans, and the fact that they allow females to conduct church services is one of the biggest ones. It's a flagrant violation of Scripture. There's absolutely nothing in Scripture that uh, permits female pastors. Uh, Paul is Saint Paul is absolutely adamant on the subject. I do not I do not suffer a woman to speak in church. That's as categorical as you can make it. Now, that does not mean women have no place in the church. That's just stupid. Uh, if you look at the Old Testament, it's very clear. Uh, women served as judges. They served as prophetesses. Uh, certainly in the New Testament, you look at the, the Gospel of Luke. There is a prophetess named, I think, Anna, who uh, foretells the coming of the Lord and does so with great skill. Uh, but these are women who are generally of a very particular and singular cast of a particular type. And these are not your average run-of-the-mill kind of what you might call westernized women today. But be that as it may, a female so-called pastor was giving the service. And you know, this being the Anglican church is a bit wishy-washy, uh, which is one of the reasons why the Anglican church is in Britain, certainly, and in America and much of the West suffering so badly because it is just lukewarm. And as Revelation uh, tells us, the Lord will spit out of his mouth any church that he considers to be lukewarm, either be hot or be cold, but do not be lukewarm. So anyway, the sermon was all about what is the point of Christmas? And the pastor was going on and on about how you know, God came down into the flesh and dwelt among us and took on our cares and our concerns and understood how we live and became a man to experience the, the joys and the travails and the difficulties and the challenges of daily life. And it essentially came down to this question of, of you know, if you accept the priceless gift that God gives us, it's free. It's free of charge. You don't have to worry about paying it back the way you have to worry about paying your mortgage or you have to worry about paying your your car loan or your electricity bill, which are all very difficult things nowadays for many Western families and uh, Western uh, people. It is a very difficult life right now. And it is a challenge to do these things in an environment of constantly rising prices and uh, really difficult circumstances, brought on, quite frankly, in no small part through the astonishing, astounding stupidity of so many world leaders. But as usual, with again, with the Anglicans, and I'm not really trying to bag on the Anglicans here. I mean, I have similar issues with uh, the Protestants, uh, many Protestant denominations. Uh, many, I, I have big problems with the Catholic Church in terms of their doctrine, um, which is why I call myself a non-denominational Christian. I have fewer problems with the Orthodox doctrines, but that's partly because I don't really know much about the Orthodox uh, approach to Christianity, so I just, I don't talk about it. But having worshipped in uh, Anglican and uh, Protestant and Catholic churches for the last few years, uh, I can see they have big, big gaps in their doctrines, and they filled them in with essentially tradition and 
happenstance or hearsay, which I do not like. But anyway, um, there were a few things about this sermon which I thought were way off. The first of which was the notion that the implication, perhaps, that God has only ever entered the human realm as a man once. This is flatly not true. Uh, Genesis makes it very clear that Abraham met all three persons of the one essence of God. Uh, if you go to Genesis chapter, I think it's uh, 16 or 18, you will see it. I mean, uh, it's, let's see, it's God's uh, covenant with um, Abraham and with, uh, you know, farther on down the line. I think it's, I think it might be Genesis chapter uh, 18. Yeah, uh, you know, start at Genesis 18, 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by my servant. Now, uh, the word in Hebrew, I, I am looking at a translation, but if you were to look up the word in Hebrew and look at what it is he said in Hebrew itself, using like Logos Bible software from the now very sorely missed and dearly departed uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, uh, you will see it's Adonai or, uh, you know, uh, the one of the various names for the Lord, uh, Hashem. You will not see, um, you will not see a sort of everyday connotation of my Lord as in my king, but something much deeper than that in talking about the spirit realm. So it's not as if God doesn't know who we are and what we do and what afflicts us every day. I mean, God has made it very clear throughout Scripture. He knows what is in our hearts. He understands it. He know the the one claim that God makes throughout Scripture is very clear. God knows the human heart. He does not necessarily claim to know everything at all times, although uh, there are arguments for and against that. And I won't get into that. I mean, I'm not I'm not a theologian. I'm not here to try to lawyer around the plain words of Scripture, but. What God is trying to tell us is uh, he understands us and he knows us and he loves us nonetheless. The second thing the pastor said, which kind of got my back up, was about um, how the gift is free. It's not free. It's not. It's freely offered. Yes. But there is a cost. There is a real price to following Jesus. And no one should ever, ever, ever take on that burden lightly. Because it says very clearly in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is going out to find uh, people to follow him, he says, um, you know, foxes have their holes and birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, something along those lines. And probably butchering scripture pretty badly. My apologies for that. But if you are to follow Jesus himself, you're going to run into a very serious cost. There's no doubt or question about that. There is a cost involved. And it's 
not something you can just take on because you feel like it. It's something if you, I think um, C.S. Lewis said it best. If you're looking for an easy religion to follow, don't go anywhere near Christianity. I'm paraphrasing what he said. Because there's nothing easy about it. There's nothing free about the, the nature of the faith. What you get in exchange for what you give up is tremendous. I mean, it's so worth it. But make no mistake, this is not a religion of works. It is a religion of faith. Your works come through your faith, but it is a religion of faith. And if you can't offer up that faith, you have no business calling yourself a Christian. You have no business talking about yourself as a Christian. So it's important to keep these things in mind when we think about the purpose of Christianity. So why then do we celebrate Christmas if the nature of Christianity is suffering, repentance, difficulty, struggle, at the end of which you overcome all of these things and you, you come out of that experience changed, yes, but why would anybody want to follow it? Well, the answer is to be found in Christmas Day, I think. Why does the Gospel of John begin with the lines, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and so on and so forth. And it goes through, uh, and why is it that throughout the uh, throughout the the epistles, you'll see things like, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, right? Uh, well, not the epistles, in the Gospel of John itself, rather. Um, it says so, right there. Uh, it says in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son of, from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the point of the season. This is the point of Christmas. I think our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Voxamort the most malevolent and terrible, put it the best many years ago. I think this was, oh, I don't know, well over 10 years ago. I mean, I've been reading him for. I think since 2008, probably no, since 2007, so a good 16 years now. Um, and he's had his blog for like 20 almost. So he's written an enormous number of things about the nature of Christ Christianity and why it's important, why it matters. Well, the reason it matters is very simple. Christianity is not about getting gifts. It's not about being with family, it's not about caroling, as I said earlier, right at the beginning. It's not about any of these things. Christianity is not about giving to get. That is the prosperity gospel, and it is a blasphemous heresy which needs to be expunged from the church completely. This idea that you invest a $10 or $100 into the church and God will see your gift and will multiply it unto you a thousandfold. Uh, no, there's absolutely no reason for him to do that. Why would he do that? He will only do that if it serves his purposes, not yours. You, as a created being, are there to serve God, not the other way around. He is not some magical wish-granting MacGuffin 
that, you know, he's not a cosmic slot machine where you put in your money and you crank a handle and hopefully you hit a jackpot. That's ridiculous. I mean, that that's outright blasphemy. That's idolatry uh, of the worst kind. That's exactly what Christianity is there to fight. This is not Christianity. The true nature of Christianity is of God becoming man in the midst of blood and pain and, you know, straw and mud and animal smells in a humble little city called Bethlehem under the light of one bright star. That is the nature of Christianity. It is about God coming to man as one of us, humbling himself to become one of us, uh, uh, the son of a carpenter, born into a, a situation where people were spreading rumors about how his his mother had um, uh, conceived him out of wedlock, born to a father who was a righteous man, but who had to live for the rest of his life with under the cloud of suspicion of being a cuckold, born into a time when the Romans were in full charge of Palestine, Palestina as they called it, and kept the Israelites under their yoke and uh, directly challenged the authority of the one God, of Yahweh, and brutally suppressed the Jewish faith. Now, the Jewish faith by this time was no longer the Jewish faith of Moses. It had changed and it had mutated and not in good ways at all. The post-Babylonian Jewish faith is not the pre-exilic faith of Moses. It is not the pre-exilic uh, approach of the Torah, of the Pentateuch. Not at all. It's very different. This is what Jesus came into the world to fix, to change, because God's chosen people had failed him one time too many. And so Jesus came among us to help us understand and see the light and make us better, make us sons of God in a very different sense from what had come before, where to be a son of God meant to trace your descent through Adam uh, himself and you know, kind of look at the line of Israel through Adam. Uh, it's very different now. We are, those of us who are Gentiles, who are not born Jewish, are grafted onto the tree. So we come in as sort of uh, extra shoots who have been tied onto the healthy living tree of the word of God but we were not originally given the word. That is where Jesus comes in. And the true nature of Christianity really comes down to a little boy born in a manger who would grow into a man that would sacrifice himself for all of mankind. And not just a man, but a God as well. The only kind of God that could do that and get away with it. Now, when we look around, look at the world around us, it's important to understand we live in a world that is openly rejecting much of that teaching, certainly in the Western world, that is true. Uh, there are signs, I agree, of a serious Christian revival happening 
beneath the surface in the towns and the cities, you can see and feel and hear uh, people coming back to church, certainly in the Netherlands, in many of the Central European countries, certainly in Hungary, that's true, but uh, probably in France, not in Germany, I don't think. Uh, Italy, well, the Italians are kind of dying out, but you know, perhaps that's happening there. Spain, yeah, probably to some extent. Uh, the United States, definitely, there, there is a strong grassroots movement to reclaim the church in the name of God. Uh, but really, the reason why the church is collapsing in the West, at least the mainline churches are collapsing, is because they've had it too easy and too good for too long. And that's the truth of things. If you look at the history of our church, of the Christian church, we thrive when we're under persecution. We expand the fastest when our people do good in the face of overwhelming evil, when people are out to kill us and harm us and torture us, and we go smiling to our deaths, forgiving our captives, singing hymns of praise to the God-man who died for us and rose again. That's something no other faith offers. No other faith has that kind of an ethos, that kind of an ethic that says, forgive those who torment you. Do what Jesus did when he was dying on the cross and say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. It's not, you know, that doesn't exist in any, in any other faith. And the one that I like to pick on the most is Islam, because it is a blasphemous heresy of Christianity. It's much, much worse than the prosperity gospel, because if you actually look at the history of Islam, you'll very quickly realize where it went wrong. Uh, it embraced a unitarian approach to, uh, to faith, and as all Unitarian sects inevitably do, ran into very serious theological problems because when you go into Unitarianism, you immediately run afoul of Scripture, which contradicts flatly everything that Unitarianism preaches. Add to that the way that um, the Islamic Scriptures were essentially cobbled together uh, out of whole cloth, I mean, quite literally in, in many cases, and you get to a situation where Islam essentially tries to copy what Christianity offers, but does so very badly and in a very haphazard way. So you end up with this really weird mishmash of pagan, Unitarian, uh, Reformed Judaic, uh, Gnostic Christian, and other kind of pan-Arab nationalist ideals and ideas squashed into one, and you end up with this very jumbled up, contradictory, nonsensical so-called religion, which preaches works as a way out of damnation, yet at the same time says, uh, all of your sins were preordained for you before you were even born. I mean, I'm not making that up. That's in the Quran. The, the Quran says very clearly um, that... Uh, Basically, Moses argued with uh, Adam in, again, I'm talking in the Islamic scriptures. I'm not saying anything about uh, Christian scriptures. But in Islamic texts, uh, Moses goes to Adam and Musa, Musa says to Adam, you know, why did you condemn us? How, how could you do this to us? And Adam responds and says, why are you 
uh, condemning me for what something that Allah preordained for me, uh, ordained for me 40 years before my birth or before my creation. I'm paraphrasing very, very heavily, but this is essentially what it says. If you don't believe me, go look up uh, Christian Prince's videos on this subject, Sam Shamon, uh, David Wood, uh, you know, Rob Christian, Adam Seeker, I mean, all of these guys, uh, but particularly look up Christian Prince, Rob Christian, and Adam Seeker, because they all speak to my knowledge, Adam Seeker, I think, speaks Arabic, but Rob Christian and Christian Prince definitely do. Al-Fadi of uh, Sierra International also is a native Arab speaker, as is, uh, Sam Shamon is actually an Assyrian Christian. So he comes from the part of the world where a lot of the Gnostic Gospels came from and where they still speak uh, Aramaic and as such recognize the Quran as uh, an Aramaic text, a Syro-Aramaic text that has long since been butchered and corrupted by other people into something, into saying something that it doesn't actually say at all. But the reason I bring up Islam is because these are exactly the kinds of people that Jesus came along to say. This is why the word became flesh. Because when you talk to Muslims, uh, you'll be struck in so many cases by just how profoundly decent they are. I, really, I mean, I bag on Islam a lot and with good reason. But I have nothing but love for Muslims. I mean, they annoy me, yes. The, the more pig-headed and stupid among them absolutely irritate me tremendously because you can't argue with them. I mean, they, they, will, they are literally worse than flat earthers because with flat earthers, you can, you can present them with layer upon layer upon layer of evidence and they will always argue, well, you know, that could have been made up. That, that's, that's fake. That's, somebody came up with that video. Somebody came up with that photo. It's been doctored. It's been, you know, and so on and so forth. You can never pin them down. Muslims are worse because they will look at the entire mess of contradiction that is their texts uh, and they will run away from it completely. They will constantly shoot squid ink everywhere. They will try to veer from one topic to another. You listen to Christian Prince's videos. It's absolutely hilarious how he skewers these guys. And he just shoots down every single argument they make. He just points out, you know, here's a contradiction. Here's what your here's what your Quran says in Arabic. Here's what the tafsir, the commentary says. Here's what the hadith say that uh, uh, back up what the Quran says directly. And they just constantly run around in circles. They don't answer the question. He says, does it say this? Yes or no? Does it say this? Yes or no? Like five times in a row. And they won't respond. They won't uh, reference his argument. They won't answer his question. They'll try to run in circles. They'll try to run away. They'll try to run to the Bible and say, well, look at your Bible. It says this is a contradiction. Meanwhile, the problem is their own Quran says very clearly, uh, whatever is in the scriptures of the Jews and the Christians, the people of the book, uh, we believe in you and what is with them. You know, I'm, I'm mixing up the Quran and a hadith that uh, involves... Uh, molester basically taking the Torah, putting it on a seat cushion and placing his hand on it and saying that. But you get the gist of it. it the, the interesting thing about Islam is if the Bible is true, which it is, Islam is false because it contradicts the Bible. If the Bible is false, Islam is also false because Islam says very clearly it is in line with the Bible.
So you've got a serious problem. But that is not to say Muslims themselves are bad people. Quite the opposite, as a matter of fact. They are profoundly good and decent and kind people in the main. They are really amazing people. And if you talk to them, you'll realize very quickly, they have a deep appreciation and understanding of heaven and hell. They love Jesus, or what they consider to be Jesus, which is really Asa, uh, which is a mistranslation or a transliteration of Esau into Arabic, rather than Yeshua, which is what they should have taken. And they consider him to be um, the son of Maryam, the brother of Aaron, the brother of Musa, Moses. So they have a completely mixed up genealogy. They, I mean, they're, they're, they're whole, the whole of their texts are shot through with inaccuracies and, and uh, problems and, and you know, historical just anachronisms, which you would expect from a text assembled by human hands in a big hurry, which is exactly what the Quran is. But the reason why Muslims are important these days is because as I said in, and as I, as I wrote a while back, uh, a couple of months ago, you know, in a post called Five Questions Islam Cannot Answer, I talked about the avalanche of apostasy that is threatening to consume Islam. It is real, my friends. It is absolutely real. The reason it's happening is because more and more Muslims are being exposed to the lies of their imams of their uh, prophet, of their kind of um, their co-religionists through the internet, through the miracle of the internet. They are being exposed over time to just how badly they've been duped. And more than that, they're looking at the secular liberal West and they typically have one of two reactions. Either they retreat into hardline opposition to the degeneracy and stupidity and madness they see in the West, which is not surprising uh, because many of us have that same reaction. Or they look at the openness and the willingness to question and the freedoms and the rights that we have in the West. And they say to themselves, well, this is completely different from anything that I experience at home with my religion, and they start questioning. And this is always the gateway, the, the door that opens just wide enough for Jesus to walk through. Because the moment you open that door just a little bit, Jesus can step in and fill your heart and your soul with just the boundless love and joy that the Father has for his children. It's once you felt it, there's no mistaking it. The feeling is indescribable. It's when you know it, you, you recognize it. Just pure joy and peace and happiness. And it doesn't matter what a bad day you've, you've had. It doesn't matter how frustrating things are. It doesn't matter how difficult your life is. You just feel happy and you feel calm and you feel this sense of joy so great it's almost as if your body can't contain it. That is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's when you know you're in the presence of the divine. 
it's just a you know small taste of it because if you were to experience the full weight of God's presence, it would be oh, it would destroy you. Um, it is impossible for God to enter our an, an infinite God by definition to enter our finite comprehension and material existence without causing serious damage. Because how do you fit an infinite object into a finite container? You know, duh. Um, mathematically speaking, it's impossible. So the infinite being would have to limit himself in considerable ways just to fit into a, a finite vessel, obviously. But when you get that feeling, it is absolutely unmistakable. You will come away from that feeling with this powerful knowledge of just the sheer love that God has for you. And many Muslims are now reporting this around the world. And this is not new. This has been happening for years, possibly decades. But more and more Muslims in very repressive countries, Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, large parts of Iraq, uh, parts of Syria where ISIS used to rule and which have, you know, ISIS has now been bombed into bloody meat and charred bones by, not by the Trump administration as it happens, this is false, by the Russian aerospace forces and um, by the Russian, well, at the time, the Wagner organization. Um, they were the ones who really, truly destroyed ISIS in open combat. Uh, and they are the reason why Syria is, to a very large extent, liberated from ISIS. I'm not saying Bashar al-Assad is a good guy. He's a lot better than the global homo pedo fairy Satanists who want to topple him, for sure. But he is a staunch defender, actually, of Syrian Christians. So, you know, he's got that going for him. Um, Muslims around the world, in places like Indonesia, in... Uh, the UAE, in Bahrain, Yemen, uh, Oman, Egypt, around the world, they're all saying the same thing, which is that they open their hearts to Jesus because he appears to them in dreams, which is one of the very few legitimate ways in which their God, Allah, communicates with them. This is a fact. It's one of the very few Quranically correct ways in which they can commune with their God. Most of the time, their God is too high and mighty, too remote, too distant, to deign to come into the world of men. Uh, he doesn't do it, in fact. Uh, he, he stays above the fray and is so other from humanity that he simply refuses to get involved. And, um, you know, he basically sits there and counts your sins and if your good deeds are greater than your bad deeds, then you go to heaven, but into Jannah, as they call it. But even as you're walking across that bridge to get to Jannah, he can change his mind and just cast you straight down into the fiery pit. That's how Islamic theology works. Completely different from the way biblical theology works. Where when you accept the, the gift of God, the, the, the gift that Jesus gave you freely, and you say, I'm willing to pay that price, and I'm willing to give up everything to follow you, my Lord and my God. When you say that, and you really mean it, you really, really mean it, God enters into your life in a way that you cannot comprehend at first. But looking back, you realize, wow, you know, 
things were happening for me in ways that I needed to be willing to just let go of control and let God do his thing before these good things could happen. It's very, very difficult to let go of that control. And that's one of the reasons why Muslims have such a hard time accepting Jesus into their lives. Because for them, um, they have the illusion of free will. They, they say we have the illusion of free will. You know, Allah uh, dictates everything for us. The, the whole course of our lives is, is uh, written for us before you know, we were born. At the same time, we supposedly have free will, so if we do good deeds or we do bad deeds, then it's counted to us as a blessing or a curse. And none of it makes sense. Whereas when we come to them and we point out, no, actually, you do have free will. This is what God wants you to do. You are free to accept or reject it as you see fit. But if you reject it, then you pay the price for it. If you accept it, it's not necessarily going to make your life better. You're not going to be happy necessarily, at least not at first but your life will get better over time, they find that hard to understand. They find it very hard to imagine. Because to them, it's all about good deeds versus bad deeds. It's not about accept or reject God's offering to you. But when Jesus appears to them in dreams, which he is doing, which he has done and is doing to millions of them, they can no longer deny his sacred power. They can no longer deny his presence in the world. And his ability to vanquish and destroy evil. And the fact that evil runs screaming from him, from the very mention of his name. When you see that in action, it is not surprising at all that Islam is suffering from a tremendous and very severe plague of apostasy. Now, all you need to know about the difference between Christianity and Islam is in the way that each treats its apostates. In Christianity, we don't behead our apostates. Not anymore. We don't burn them at the stake anymore. We just say to them, well, the ground is near cursed. Do what you will. Um, you're going to need a serious spanking if, uh, if, you, if you decide to walk away from God. That's fine. But you're going to be in very, very deep trouble. Uh, spiritually, emotionally, physically, it's going to be a very rough ride for you. And this is what you've chosen. Have it your way. In Islam, to stop people from, um, well, they would call it from de-reverting or from basically being full-on apostates, uh, they will straight up kill people. I mean, all four uh, major schools of Sunni thought, all three major Shia schools, every Sufi school, uh, all of them all say the same thing. The penalty for apostasy is death. The only difference between any of them is that each school has a different approach to um, when the death penalty should be administered. Some of the schools say you should be given a chance to repent and say, no, 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 I didn't really mean it. I'm still a Muslim. I'll recite the Shahada and, and pray five times a day, etc., etc. Uh, and he's got a fixed time limit where he can do that. And that's the only way to avoid the death penalty. But if you don't do it, then you die. Um, some of the other schools say it's the death penalty immediately. You know, you're an apostate, that's it, off with your head. So the all you need to do to understand the difference is to see how they treat their apostates. That's it. Christianity treats its apostates with you know, regret, reluctance. Um, it doesn't kill them anymore. There were plenty of times when they did kill them. That's true. 
not running away from that. I mean, it's a fact. This was a feature of the church uh, at various points in its existence under various denominations. This is true. Uh, but Islam has always treated apostates with utmost brutality and violence. And all you have to do to understand how the Holy Spirit transfigures and changes a man is to look at what happened to the ex-Muslims who became Christians. These are some of the best Christians you'll ever meet. They are so filled with the fire of God. They're so on fire for the Lord. They're so keen to get out there and save souls. They're so militant and strong in their faith. They put the rest of us to shame. Uh, I mean, they, they, are, they are horrified by what they see of people in their former cult. Uh, and they want to save people from that. They want to wrench them out of the fire before they're destroyed. That's a wonderful thing. I wish we had more Christians like that. I wish I was like that. But that is the reason why the word became flesh. So that the rest of us could be like that. So that we could know in a very real, very human sense what God is like. See, the, the sheer otherness of God, the sheer, you know, strangeness of him requires him to come down to our level, almost, and talk to us in terms that we can understand. Because if we tried to talk in, in the way that God understands, I mean, how do you talk to an infinite being of infinite power? A finite mind cannot grasp it. it Infinity is impossible to understand. Literally, it's impossible to understand, which is why, you know, I'm, I'm saying this as a, somebody who studied mathematics, it's an abstract concept. Um, it, it, the idea behind infinity is to use it as uh, an extreme limit, as a, a limiting sort of function or factor in the variables and, func and, um, and uh, functions that we evaluate and the equations that we create. Uh, infinity is not something you can ever reach. Well, duh, you know, we are a finite race in a finite realm. No matter how gigantiferous it all seems to be, we are still quite tiny, as a matter of fact. But to talk with us, God humbled himself and came to us to help us understand what and who he is, and what he's capable of. Now, as far as I'm concerned, if people ask me why I believe in Christ, why I praise his name, why I give him all glory, it's very simple. If someone comes up to me and says to me, uh, I was born of a virgin, and uh, I grew up with, you know, doing all these miracles, and you can talk to all of these guys behind me, they all saw it happen, they all saw these miracles, they all know about the virgin birth, uh, I would look at him and say, yeah, you're crazy. And I would look at his friends and say, you're probably afflicted with some sort of, you know, um, mass hypnosis or, or, or collective psychosis of some kind. It's happened. I mean, that's what cult leaders do. Um, and then if he goes on and says to me, no, 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 listen, I am who I say I am. And to prove it to you, I'm going to die on a cross. Well, maybe not on a cross, but I'm going to die in agony and pain. 
And on the third day after I die, I'm going to rise again from the dead. And I'll look at him and I'll say, yeah, you're one for the loony bin, mate. And I'll show him the, the path to the nearest mental hospital. And then if he turns around and says, nope, just you watch, I'm going to do it. I'll say to him, because I'll, I'll probably be fed up at this point. I'll say to him, okay, go on then, take your best shot. And I'll watch and wait, because at this point I'm like, you know, he's he's got to be having me on. And then if he actually does it, and he dies, and he rises again on the morning of the third day, and he appears to me in the flesh, and he says to me, put your fingers in my side and feel the holes, the wounds in my hands. And he says, stop doubting and believe. At that point, I really don't have any choice. He's exactly who he says he is. He's the son of God. And that's exactly what we see with, with Jesus. That's exactly what we see with the Christ. All of the stories about him point to the exact same conclusion. That he was one of three things. He was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. He is Lord. And he proved it over and over and over again. By coming down, fulfilling prophecies, by healing people, by giving people a sense of hope that they didn't have before. By giving them an understanding that God is indeed with us that the Prince of Peace is among us. And that's what he did for us. For me, this year has been a really profoundly good one. Um, much, much better than what I'd experienced before. For, you know, ever since I lost my job, I had to leave the US. Uh, basically, somebody, God, uh, essentially, reached down and hit this big reset button on my life. And completely threw me for a loop for, you know, four years, uh, well, two and a bit years. And then I kind of had to start building myself back up over time. Um, but now I look at where I am and I'm just, I can't quite believe how blessed I am. It's not in, in, in material terms, although, yeah, that's, you know, it's, I'm not, not going to lie. It's been a it's been a decent year. Uh, it's been a good, a very good year, in fact. Um, but I look at where I am. You know, I'm geographically for the first time. I'm stable for the first time in many many years. Uh, I've got a wonderful, amazing family. Who they you know, they don't they don't share my faith, but that's fine. I don't I don't preach to them. I don't tell them they have to follow me. Um, but they accept it. You know, I don't I don't talk about it openly at all. Um, I don't tell them what I think. I don't tell them that I follow Jesus, but they know. I think at some level they do know and understand this is what I've chosen. And I don't see any reason to make them think the same way I do. As far as I'm concerned, you know, it's their choice. Um, I'll readily spread the, share the gospel with anyone who asks. Just keep in mind, you know, I mean, I keep quiet about my faith, uh, to people who know me. I don't, most of the people who know me have no idea 
that I believe what I believe. But the moment they ask me, they'll, they're going to get it with both barrels. I mean, there's, there's no holding back once you've understood who Jesus is and what he does for people. There's no holding back on, on the praise you heap upon him, on the love that you show him, because his presence in your life is transformative. It does change you. And it becomes really obvious when people look at you and they talk to you, it's really, really obvious there's something going on inside of you that, you know, despite all the frustrations and the irritations and the stupidities of other people and the just the 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 naughty, nitty-gritty details of life and things not going the way you want and bills stacking up and all this other junk, people look at you and they realize there's something different about him. He's not getting annoyed or frustrated the way the rest of us are. There's a calmness about him or her. I can't explain it. What's going on there? I mean, what what is what is this this strange, you know, peace train that this person is on? And the answer is that person is spending his or her time contemplating God, contemplating Jesus contemplating the Lord, what the Lord wants, and trying to do what it is the Lord wills for that person. And that's, that is what gives us our sense of peace, of inner calm, of joy and happiness that nothing else can replace or change. There is a, an aching void that gets filled up by the presence of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit, which indwells within you and gives you that connection to the numinous, to, to God himself. Very difficult to explain. Uh, unless you felt it, there's really not much point. I mean, you kind of have to take that leap of faith and say, you know what? I'm going to commit. And it's terrifying, I know. I mean, it's absolutely bloody terrifying. You get to the, the edge of that precipice and you think, I have to believe in somebody who was born of a virgin and who came back from the dead. Like, this is impossible. But, okay, here I go. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll accept it. And the moment you say those things, the moment you truly accept in your heart and you speak with your mouth that Jesus came down to earth, was born of a virgin, died on the cross, rose again from the, on the third day, and came to heal the sins of mankind, and is uh, consubstantial with the Father in heaven and the Holy Spirit, then very magical and wonderful things start happening in your life. I mean, it seems magical, but it's not magic. It's just God finally accepting you back into his, his arms and his fold. Because... Remember why Jesus came into the world, ultimately. Beyond everything else I've talked about, beyond saving you as an individual or saving people from a death cult called Islam, or saving people from paganism, saving the Jews from their mistakes, saving us from a very mercantilized and commercialized holiday which no longer obeys the spirit of Christmas, Above all else, sit down and read your Bible from cover to cover over the course of a year, as I've done 
uh, twice now, I think. Yeah, very roughly. If you look at a like, so if if you take my English uh, English Standard Version translation of the Bible, that is one thousand ninety five pages long. You know, double uh, double page, double sided, etc. If you divide that by three hundred sixty five, you're going to get to a little under three pages a day of text that you need to read. Very doable. Set aside ten minutes a night or ten minutes a morning. Wake up and read three pages of the Bible every day. That's all it takes. And don't just read it, like, just for the sake of hitting a target. I mean, some days I'll read, you know, a paragraph. Other days I'll sit there and read 10 or 15 pages at a time because it's really interesting. I mean, it, it, the Bible, for all that it is a lengthy book, is also remarkably terse. Believe it or not, it's actually amazingly compact. And if you don't believe me, go look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. So much meaning in just those four verses, it's astonishing. Go look at, um, oh, I don't know. Uh, go look at what Jesus said uh, in the, in the um, not the Lamentations, the, the what's it called? The, the Beatitudes, that's it. Go look at what he said in the Beatitudes and look at how profound those statements were. Go look at the way that he fed the 4,000 and the 5,000 and read between the lines. You realize there was a, there were a lot more people than just four or 5,000 at each of those events because it says besides women and children in, in, in those events, which means that he actually ended up feeding 15 to 20,000 people every time. He was talking before crowds of 15 to 20,000 people, which means he had audiences the size of well, a lot of modern megachurches in the United States. But put aside all of that, read the Bible end to end. And what you're going to realize is it all ties together. It, the entire story of the Bible, regardless of all the individual histories and the, the timelines and the kings and the, you know, what David did and what Solomon did and what happened in the exile and after the exile and what the Romans did, all of that, right? Never mind all of that stuff. Look at the, the reason why Jesus is here. He is here to heal or repair the damage caused by three different rebellions. Not just one rebellion, not just the fall of man. Three rebellions. The first was the rebellion of the angels. The angels who followed Lucifer into perdition and damnation. And refused to do the holy work that God assigned for them. Now, the thing to understand about angels, I'm, I'm taking this from Father Chad Ripperger of the Catholic Church, uh, an exorcist for whom I have great respect. See, just because I disagree with the Catholic Church on points of theology doesn't mean I disrespect them. Um, I have a lot of respect for Catholic exorcists in particular because they're very practical people. And they've been, I mean, they've been in the trenches. They've fought with the devil. They know who he is and they're not afraid of him. And that's astonishing. Uh, he will tell you the reason why we get mercy as humans is because we're stupid, which is true, we are. We don't know the consequences of failure to obey God. We don't. We don't understand them. We don't understand hell. We don't understand eternal damnation. Angels do. They were created with complete understanding of their given task and the, f the, the penalty for refusing to take on that task. And because they have complete free will, 
they have the ability to accept or reject that task once. And the moment they make the decision to reject that task, they are forever cast out as demons. Now, that rebellion occurred sometime before the creation of man, as far as most theology teaches us. Then there was the fall, the rebellion of Eve and then Adam against the word of God, eating of the, the, the tree of the fruit of the tree of good and evil. And then there was the third rebellion of the Tower of Babel and God basically scattering the nations and breaking them apart. These are the three great rebellions. The point of Jesus is to heal the damage done by those. Because if you look at what happens in Revelation, if you start with Genesis and you look at the fall and you look at all the things that happened between Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 10 and all of the terrible evils that befell mankind, it's just one long series of curses. And the way we are today, stunted, broken, malformed, uh, unintelligent, uh, disobedient, futile, darkened in our thoughts and our, and our hearts, is because of what happened during the period described in Genesis. Whereas if you look at what happens in Revelation, many of those curses become are broken or relaxed to a very great degree. And the millennial reign takes place. And we exist with Jesus as part of God's holy family. Ultimately, the reason why God sent his son into this world, sent himself into the world, was to invite you back to his holy family. You, you specifically, you, whoever it is you are listening to this, he wants you back among his children. And he's giving you that chance. And this day is a reminder of how he did it. By sending a helpless tiny infant into the world in the midst of blood and hay and mud and pain and animal smells as a humble little boy to live amongst us and to offer us that gift of salvation. If that doesn't inspire you to faith, nothing possibly can. There's, there's nothing I can tell you, there's nothing anyone can tell you, which would give you a clearer understanding of God's love for you and his desire for you to find your way back to him than that. Well, I hope I've uh, been of some entertainment perhaps or some value in everything i've said uh, i'm going to wrap it up here because it's been about an hour and it's getting a bit late for me um it's been a long couple of days and i've got a long few days ahead yet to go um i'm going to be traveling back to the old country uh very soon and you know i mean later on this week that's not going to be fun uh traveling is never fun but uh i am really just delighted to be able to spend Christmas with you and I thank you as always for your time, for your patronage, for your subscriptions and your comments, your uh, your care and your uh, your good wishes and you know may the peace and blessings of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you on this most sacred and holy of days. Uh, God be with you brothers and I just wish you the very best to you and your families uh, on Christmas Day. 
This has been Didactic Mind, episode 115, and the word became flesh, and this is Didact, over and out.